All right. Good morning. Uh, I'm Kevin. As I said earlier, I'm really glad to be here worshiping with you and really grateful and thankful for the opportunity to be up here and opening God's Word with you. I just want to um, uh, thank Tim for allowing me the chance and the opportunity to, to, to speak this morning. And um, I'm entering this prayerfully, um, expecting and hoping that the Holy Spirit will be here moving in our hearts and speaking to us. So I um, wanted to start off, uh, there was a time uh, not too recent history um, for me when uh, I was on the computer at home and I decided, you know what, I'm going to clean things up a little bit. Uh, I think the computer's getting a little bit bogged down. I want to I move some files. I want to clean some stuff out, uh, junk some stuff that's really, really just bogging things down. And so what I did is uh, I looked at my external hard drive, and you're like, you know what, this is, this is operating way slower than it should be. I'm just going to reformat this thing, and, and we'll start over. So, of course, the warning comes up. It says, um, are you sure you want to reformat your hard drive. All files will be permanently deleted. I said, sure, yeah, that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to clean up. So I hit OK, and there went the files, gone. Good, clean. Now I don't have to deal with that stuff anymore. Um, It wasn't until a little bit later that I realized that there was a little bit of a problem. When Catherine asked me, hey, Kevin, uh, where's the file folder with all the pictures in it. And I was like, well, it's on the desktop somewhere where you've been saving it, obviously. And uh, she said, no, no, I've been saving it to this external hard drive. And then it hit me. I had single-handedly erased, evaporated all of our family photos from of our, fam- of, of our kids, our, our family memories from birth to that moment with one click. My mind raced, like, what am I going to do? How am I going to get out of this? What do I do now? How am I going to get these files back? And I had no option. There was nothing I could do except say, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, will you please forgive me? Now, you know that Catherine, my wife, did forgive me because I'm still standing here. And you can imagine, you can imagine what that must have felt like for me. After the, after the embarrassment and the awkwardness of Uh, realizing what I had done, being able to step in and receive full and complete forgiveness for that kind of a blunder. And as, as I saw the depth and the fullness of Catherine's forgiveness, in that moment I began to see her in a different light. Something softened in my heart towards her and it opened up a greater depth of love for her. And it moved our relationship to another level. It was incredible. And even as I'm thinking about it now, even as I'm talking through it and remembering back to it, 
I'm feeling those same things again and recognizing that, wow, I'm going to be looking for whatever way that I can to express that love and gratitude to Catherine. Not because I can ever pay down that debt, but because her forgiveness was so complete and it changed my heart. And wouldn't you respond the same way to something like that, to forgiveness so full and complete? If we want to be free to a greater depth of love, we have to keep the depth of our forgiveness fresh. It has to be fresh in our minds. It has to be fresh in our hearts. Because love is the result of keeping forgiveness fresh. The alternative is to forget forgiveness and to allow kind of the stiffness and the coldness of that forgetfulness to stiffen our hearts. And we see this played out in Luke chapter 7 this morning. And in Jesus' day, at a well-respected and wealthy religious leader's home, we're given the picture of two responses. One that's stiff and one that's fresh. We see the, the response of both stiff forgetfulness and fresh remembrance. The comparison of the two is vivid and telling. So we'll be in Luke chapter 7, verses 35 to 50. And if you don't have a Bible, the one in the pew is our gift to you. Please feel free to take that. We'd love for you to have a Bible of your own. Um, and if you're familiar with Luke's orderly account, you'll know at this point in the gospel, some crazy stuff has already happened. Jesus has already been talking with all kinds of authority. And he's already been performing miracles with incredible power. The blind have been given sight, the oppressed are being released, and sinners are being forgiven. Jesus hasn't journeyed too far from his hometown, but a crowd is gathering. See, word is spread that this man is traveling around and healing and talking some crazy crazy stuff. But not everybody's on board. There are those that are seeing and hearing what Jesus is doing, and they just can't fit him into what they believe their Messiah and their Savior and their King is supposed to be. It's not who they pictured. It's not who they imagined he would be. On both sides, there's people who genuinely wanted to know God and live by his statutes, but they expressed very, very different dispositions. And Luke shows us both side by side in our text this morning. So let's turn there, um, if you haven't already, verses, uh, chapter 7, verses 36 to 50. I'm going to start off with verse 36. Now one of the Pharisees invi invited Jesus to have dinner with him. So he went to the Pharisee's house, and reclined at the table. So the story starts off pretty normal, right? Uh, there's a party. There's an invitation from one leader in the synagogue to another leader who is often found teaching in the synagogue, the Pharisee inviting Jesus. And we have to understand that for this kind of party, for this kind of banquet situation, the Pharisee would have had, had to have uh, a fair amount of wealth, 
would have had to, would have, and with that wealth would have come status and position. And so at this party, um, it would make sense uh, in that day, in first century culture, that if you, were, if you had been invited to this party, you now owed the host something. You were indebted to this Pharisee. And it would be expected that at some later date, you would, um, you would repay that debt with a, 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 an act of similar kind. Either you'd invite him to a party or you would do some kind of um, uh, service towards, towards paying down that debt. And it's really, really interesting to imagine Jesus in this situation as the debtor. Society's been set up, the culture's been set up, the customs have been set up, so that the Pharisee goes into this party thinking, you know what? Some people owe me something. And that's the mindset he starts out with. Jesus accepts the invitation and he's already sitting at the table. We sense there could be some tension, but Luke doesn't tell us why. Luke doesn't, Luke doesn't make it abundantly clear. But it's about to become really tense. Look at verse 37. When a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume. The banquet's underway. There's the aromas of that rich food that's cooking. There's the din of, uh, of conversation. That white noise that's kind of filling up the space. And everything is, is intentionally laid out. But then, this woman walks in. This is not the person that we would have expected to show up at this kind of party. But she doesn't run into any trouble. There's no one stopping her at the door. Notice that she just lets herself in. And this makes sense too. Because the, the culture right now, the Pharisees, they were for the common people. They would have had their doors open to the common people. They were a little bit different than the scribes and the Sadducees who were more about their position, more about their priestly position and keeping a, a good, healthy separation from the common people. So, this woman lets herself in. She doesn't, or she doesn't encounter too much trouble getting in. And I don't think that it's, it, it's too much of a stretch to say that the Pharisees' doors would have been open. But this particular visitor is about to draw a ton of attention. And it's going to be very, very out of the ordinary what she does. This is a woman from the city. Okay, the text says, in that town. And if you're a woman, if your profession was in the city, that had implications tied to it. It was pretty safe to say that this was a clear indicator of her profession. If her label wasn't enough to tip us off, the tools of her trade would be. What did she carry with her? An alabaster jar of perfume. See, what this, uh, it was clear that this woman was of questionable profession. She had a certain look, but she also had a certain aroma. This is not someone who makes the invite list. And we got to wonder, 
what brought her to this point in her life? Was she abandoned early on by her parents and had to make these difficult choices? Now, did she just get to this point in her life and was forced down a path of bad decisions to worse decisions to where this was the only way that she could survive? Or was she just unable to find a husband in a day and age when you were only recognized as a woman and you were only valued as a woman as much as you were associated with a man? By Luke's definition, she fits under the category of poor. And that goes way beyond money. For Luke, poor means she is brushed to the side. She is living in the margins of society, a very much fringe person. She does not have access to the same things that other people do. And clearly, she's in a profession that she wouldn't naturally choose, but had to choose for survival. (coughs) So the woman doesn't waste any time, but moves right to Jesus. Look at verse 38. And as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair and kissed them and poured perfume on them. So she bypasses the Pharisee, and everyone else at the party. She hasn't been invited. She isn't there to see the Pharisee, and she has no good reason to be there, except that she's heard Jesus is at this party, and she wants to offer him something. Then the real awkwardness begins. She can't give the customary kiss to the cheek. That would be insane. Um, So she thinks, what's the next best best thing? I'll, I'll kiss his feet. We've got to understand Jesus is reclining at a low table. He's sitting on a cushion, and his feet are actually behind him. So that would have been very easy for the woman to access his feet. That's the first thing she would have come to, and she begins kissing his feet. And as she's kissing his feet, she's at the same time looking up into the face of Jesus. And for the first time, she's looking into the face of a man who isn't trying to get something from her, who isn't trying to judge her, who isn't trying to use her, isn't trying to abuse her. Instead of seeing a man whose face judges and ridicules, she's seeing a man whose forgiveness has already softened her heart. She's seeing the expression of a man who forgives and accepts completely. And her Her response is tears. The tears begin flowing enough to wet Jesus' feet. Having no towel, she's like, how am I going to dry his feet? She lets down her hair. Uh Uh-uh. Big no-no in that culture. To let down your hair would have been similar to exposing yourself in public. This is crazy. She has done this most of her life, we assume, behind closed doors. She's let her hair down for men. But now she does it one last time. And this time, 
she gets it right. <coughs> this time, she expresses her gratitude and love by this incredible act. Now, at this point, the guests are aware of what's going on, most likely. They have noticed this scene, and uh, if they haven't, if they're still oblivious, they're about to be unable to ignore what's going on. The woman takes an alabaster jar filled with perfume that would have represented her livelihood. This is everything that she has. To afford a perfume bottle like this says something about what she's done, what she's been able to amass. She isn't poor in, monet in a monetary sense. But she breaks that jar and pours all of the perfume on Jesus' feet. All of what she has poured out for him. And as you can imagine, all of the smells of that glorious food suddenly overwhelmed by the smell of perfume, which has all kinds of connotations tied to it. Everybody's head turns. Everybody's conversation comes down to low murmurs of questions and what's going on, what's happening? What changed? Let's look at verse 39. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Now, remember, at this point, Jesus has been called a drunk and a glutton by those in the category of Pharisee. These are some of the labels that have already been given to him. And what, like I said, we saw the disposition of one group compared to the disposition of the other. The Pharisee observing this display sees only a promiscuous woman behaving badly and getting way too close, touching the honored guest. <coughs> the Pharisee doesn't observe an act of beautiful service. No. He just observes this, this woman uh, that he labels a sinner. Notice, he labels her a sinner, but he also labels Jesus something less than a prophet. I actually picture him standing off to the side, stepping back, stroking his beard a little bit, kind of trying to remove himself a little bit from the action, and saying, man, if, if Jesus isn't a drunk and a glutton in this environment with all this food, he is certainly not a prophet because he would know not to associate with somebody like this. Because in that day, uh, a clean thing became unclean when it touched something like a sinner, something like a contagion. And it was the same feeling of, whoa, I don't want to be infected. I've got to step back. I've got to stand away from this. 
And this woman wasn't just ceremonially unclean, morally unclean. But we don't have to be a Pharisee to relate to this. For me, it was the park kids. Where we used to live, we could see the park from our house. And oftentimes we would observe the park kids defacing the playground equipment, loitering on the picnic benches, and swearing loud enough so that we could hear with our windows and doors closed every word from their mouths in our house. From a distance, it was really, really easy for me to judge, to label the park kids. And one day I decided, I'm going over there. And as I was walking over there, something changed in my heart. I don't know what it was. I don't know why that happened. But something softened in my heart. And I decided, you know what? Maybe I'll ask some introductory questions and get to know one of these kids' stories. A little bit about what's brought them here to this point. And as I talked with this park kid, they suddenly had a name and they had a story. And I realized that, whoa, forgiveness is just as available to this park kid as it is to me. And I need it just as much as he does. And the conversation became, it moved from me wanting to lay the law down to me having compassion on this, this kid and hoping that through the course of our conversation, he would get a different picture of what his life could be like. Now, the Pharisee isn't quite there yet. Let's look at verses 40 to 43. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Okay, so this is the... I want to stop right there because this is the first time that Luke has mentioned the Pharisee's name. To this point, it's just been the Pharisee. Now we have Simon. We have Jesus being done with titles, being done with labels, saying, Simon, I have something to tell you. And so our ears naturally perk up for this. And then Jesus presents a parable having to do with debts and debtors, but it's really a parable about love. Listen to it. Verse 41, Two men owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he canceled the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? And Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt canceled. You've judged correctly, Jesus said. So talking about responses, Jesus said, which of them will love him more? Suddenly we've moved from the language of accounting to the language of relationship, to the language of love. And what we see is the principle starting to come to the surface from our text. The children of God have the disposition of those forgiven. Not just accepting it up here, but accepting it here and letting it overflow in expressions of gratitude and love. 
the children of God have the disposition of those forgiven. But the lesson doesn't end there. Jesus turns towards the woman. Let's look at verses uh, 44 to 46. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she poured perfume on my feet. Therefore I tell her her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who has been forgiven little loves little. Jesus shifts dramatically the attention to the woman and then to Simon. I I picture him extending his arm towards the woman and saying, look, see, do you see this woman? you see this woman, Simon? And finally, late in the story, we get the tension that has existed even before the woman got there. Simon has failed in the most basic and customary hospitality. What you would just naturally do for a guest who visited your home. And Jesus said, you didn't, she did. You didn't, she did. You didn't, she did. The people who have been forgiven the most are the most grateful and loving people. Jesus is is saying here the woman who knows she sinned greatly is now able to love greatly because she can see the great expansiveness of her forgiveness. He's not saying that Simon has little to be forgiven for. Rather, he's suggesting that Simon has neglected to keep forgiveness fresh. And even as he's seeing this woman who clearly has the disposition of one forgiven, we're not sure if he's actually really seeing it, if he's actually seeing what's taking place. Let's look at verse 48 to 50. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say amongst themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Now, up until this point, the woman has just been standing over here or over here off to the side and Jesus has been kind of using her as an object lesson. Like, see Simon, see this woman? But now Jesus turns to face her directly. He says, you see, your faith has saved you. Your sins are forgiven. This proves who I am, in other words. I'm not a drunken. I'm not a drunkard. I'm not a glutton. I'm the way of wisdom, and I offer hope and freedom. I have the power to forgive sins. And when I do, the response is gratefulness and love. 
Now, we know there are other guests at the party, but we haven't heard from them yet, except for this question. They ask now, who is this? One of the greatest questions of all time to ask. But we're not quite sure of the tone. The story ends before we hear Simon's ultimate response, before we get to see how the people at the party are going to respond. Will they comprehend it in their minds, what the expansive forgiveness that we've just seen on display? Will they actually apprehend it in their lives? Will they fall to the ground next to this sinner and join in the worship and the gratitude and lavishly pour out their lives for this man who offers forgiveness? We don't know. We can only make guesses. And I think Luke leaves it open for a reason. He leaves it open as if to extend the question to us. How will we respond? How will you respond? Which will it be? A soft heart that receives the forgiveness of Jesus or a hard heart that fails to see the need? There are many ways that people can respond to Jesus at at many different times in their lives. But what's your default response? How's it expressed? Jesus at a different time said, when we love others, we are loving him. So how are we doing with that? Our hearts can be, our hearts can become real tough material if we don't pay attention. Without an attentiveness to or a remembrance of our forgiveness, our hearts can easily stiffen and crack like the weathered skin of somebody that's walked miles and miles on the roads of Galilee in the heat of the sun. Or like leather boots left untreated. If you can see, the toe of this boot gets a lot of action. And it's worn. But you know where these boots live in the closet most of the year, and sometimes they don't get the attention they need. Sometimes they don't receive the oil that they need to soften this leather. To allow it to function at its best. To allow it to function the way it's designed. It needs oil. It needs maintenance. And that's what we're seeing in our text. Love is the oil that softens our hearts. Love is the resulting expression of fresh forgiveness. Now, I'm willing to bet that you have witnessed or know of relationships that have ended over less than an erased, reformatted external hard drive. Over petty arguments. Relationships have ended. But the opposite of that is when forgiveness is extended and when forgiveness is received and believed. So I could have failed to recognize the significance of Catherine's forgiveness and just moved on. But in the end, by forgetting forgiveness... I would have missed the joy of knowing a deeper love of and for my wife. 
I should to this day be trying to pay down that debt to her. But she chose to extend incredible forgiveness instead. I'm grateful beyond words for that forgiveness. It's freed me and compelled me to love Catherine more out of an abundant gratitude rather than out of a need to try and pay down a debt. But it's been much more than that because it's pointed me to one that's forgiven much, much more than a reformatted hard drive. It's pointed me to Jesus. And it's prompted me to ask the same question, who is this man that forgives? Forgives while we're yet sinners. And we have the opportunity to fall at the feet of Jesus, shoulder to shoulder with other sinners and tax collectors and offer up our love and our gratitude to him. And use whatever means we have to love because he's loved us much. So in our text, who do you identify with more? The sinful woman or the Pharisee, Simon? Sometimes we're more like the woman, a disposition that's keeping forgiveness fresh. And at other times, we're more like the Pharisee, with a disposition of forgetfulness and stiffness. What's reflected by our response to the forgiveness that's right in front of us? Who do I need to love much to keep forgiveness fresh? Who do I need to approach with forgiveness in my heart rather than judgment? Who are there people it's easy to get calloused and cold toward that need to be shown love that flows from a heart that's softened by total and full forgiveness? Is it the people at work that are doing a sloppy job and make your life harder? Is it the kids who won't stop pushing buttons at home that are breaking down the family dynamic that's healthy? Or is it the classmates that seem to have only one goal in mind, that is to disrupt and disturb? Or is it the park kids, as I labeled them, who can't find something better to do? Don't all these people have the same access to forgiveness? Don't we all need to be forgiven much? If my disposition leads me to something other than gratitude and love, what does that tell me? I want to take a pause right now. And I would like you to take a moment to identify one thing that you've been forgiven for. One thing that you've been forgiven from. And I'd like you to take a moment to write it down. Write this sentence and fill in the blanks. I blank have been forgiven from blank. I, Kevin, have been forgiven from judgmentalness. Thank you. <laughs> Praise God. Once we recognize the extent to which we've been forgiven and accepted, that forgiveness, it makes sense that we'd express our gratitude in whatever way we can. The disposition of God's children is a soft heart that has the ability to feel the full weight of forgiveness and naturally responds in love and can, that's continually kept fresh by love. 
is our disposition expressed through compassion and love? Have we not only taken the mind of those forgiven, but the disposition of those forgiven as well? My hope, my prayer, is that our dream would be like Martin Luther King Jr.'s, who said in his final sermon before being gunned down in Memphis, listen to these words, if any of you are around when I have met my day, I don't want a long funeral. And if you get somebody to deliver the eulogy, tell them not to talk too long. And every now and then I wonder what I want them to say. Tell them not to mention that I have a Nobel Peace Prize. That isn't important. Tell them not to mention that I have three or four hundred other awards. That's not important. Tell them not to mention where I went to school. Yes, I'd like somebody to mention that day Martin Luther King Jr. tried to give his life serving others. I'd like for somebody to say that day that Martin Luther King Jr. tried to love somebody. So how will you respond? How will you be remembered? How will we be remembered as Grace Point Church? When GPC is no longer, how are people going to talk about us? What would the stories they tell be like? I hope they'll say we had the disposition of God's children. The disposition of those forgiven. That we responded well by loving much because forgiveness was fresh. That we knew when to say sorry. And we knew when to say, I forgive you. And we pointed people to a knowledge of the gospel of Jesus Christ, who's forgiven much and freed us to love much. Let's pray. Lord, help us to see your forgiveness fresh today. Help us to see others through that same lens. God, please let our hearts be softened to those around us especially those that are hard to love. Those that might be in a category that makes us a little uncomfortable and downright mad. Jesus, Lord, soften our hearts by love. To love by stepping toward relationship, by labeling others correctly as image bearers of God and seeing those around us as equal with us in their access to forgiveness. By responding well, by loving well, because we're we're your children. Lord, thank you for your word this morning that reminds us that those who have been forgiven much, love much, help us to go out into this week, into the rest of our lives, loving much, because we've been forgiven much. In Jesus' name, amen.